thank you very much for agreeing to speak to me this morning, Shutapa. It's um, it's really good to have the opportunity to chat a couple of weeks after your exhibition has been installed at Arnolfini. Um, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit more about the, the pieces that you're showing, whether you could sort of go into a little bit more detail about them and, um, you know, their process of making, how you see their connection, how they fit into, into um, sort of uh, your broader um, pieces that you've been developing over the, over the last couple of years. But I thought initially, um, could you tell us a little bit about the, the new commission that you've done um, for Arnolfini, the painting entitled Zoo hyphen Edges of the Indian Ocean, 20 degrees 1990, sorry, 20.1990 degrees south by 57.7823 degrees east, which is quite a mouthful of a title. <laughs> um, well, th first of all, thank you very much um, for to Arnolfini and yourself, Phil, uh, for inviting me to participate in this um, SoundCloud. And moreover, you know, just to say, I'm delighted to be um, exhibiting my work at Arnolfini as part of the celebrations. Um, for the 60-year anniversary mm -hmm. at Arnolfini. Um, I feel very honoured, uh, you know, several years after initially uh, showing my work at Arnolfini to have been invited as part of this programme and to be back here. So um, in terms of, you know, thinking about the pieces very specifically that are currently part of the exhibition at Arnolfini. Um, beginning with uh, the painting, the quite large scale painting that you've just mentioned, Zoo, Edges of the Indian Ocean, 20.199 degrees south by 57.7823 degrees east, which was um, completed very recently in 2021. I think that for me, it's, it's a piece that by way of its title gives us a real um, sense of its, first of all, its reference to its longitudinal and latitudinal um, vectors and its position geographically in the globe, which as also the title gives away, is at the edges of the Indian Ocean. In fact, in Mauritius. And what we see in this painting is, is really um, a very large, image of a palm tree, which is very sort of elaborately and very expressionistically sort of painted and formed across two quite large sheets of um, cotton rag cardi paper. And for me, I think what was interesting um, or partly what was interesting about this work is that in my mind's eye, 
when we initially began this story, when we initially began this commission, in, and in, in, indeed, when, we, when I initially started the painting, it started as a firework, which, um, you know, that was exploding in, in the sky above. And as I came to make this piece, as I came to put the paint on, on paper, as I began to mark out this space, um, what I think was very curious is that suddenly it began to transform itself into this almost exploding tree. And I began to realize that the tree, this palm tree, was something of the starting point for um, a new film called Lumen, which is soon to be exhibited at the Red Lodge in Bristol but is also uh, part of a, of a major commission that um, has been realized in collaboration where it's been produced by um, Film and Video Umbrella uh, London in collaboration with Bristol Museum and also with Kettlejard and the Baltic um, in Gateshead, Kettlejard in Cambridge and Baltic in Gateshead. Um, with the funding and um, support, generous support of the Art Fund and Autograph Arts Council England. Now, the reason I think that that information is important is because it maybe relates to the first part of the title of this work, which is Zoo. And the image itself is drawn from one of the very first photographs that became part of the body of images, if you like, that I began to represent in the very first storyboard that I put together for my film work, Lumen. And it's taken on the edges of what is a holiday resort, in actual fact, in Mauritius. It's a very grand, very elegant holiday resort. Um, and I traveled to this part of the world in Mauritius because as I was writing my dialogue, my monologue for Lumen, which, which is a film that focuses on the oral narratives of my mother and my grandmother and myself um, by way of thinking about the sort of matrilineal journey of my mother in particular, leaving India or having to leave India in the mid 1960s and leaving you know traveling across um, India from West Bengal all the way over to Bombay and then traveling upwards 
towards the Arabian Sea through the Suez Canal, across the Mediterranean to Naples, and then traveling by land over to Calais, then taking a boat from Calais to England. And the more I thought about this, the more it returned me to the concept of colonial histories and the sets of circumstances that really, in a way, triggered this journey for my my mother. My mother and my grandmother were both born in what was at the time British India, what originally was India, but then became British India. And then subsequently under partition became East Pakistan. And today, since the 70s, is Bangladesh. So this is a story of displacement and displacement as a consequence of that very complex history of colonial colonialism and imperialism. And as I was putting together this script, if you like, for and the ideas for Lumen, this was right at the beginning, I felt that I really needed to understand a sense of what it felt to encounter the Indian Ocean. And to an extent, to encounter perhaps what my mother felt by way of trauma in leaving her her home, in leaving her place of birth, in, well, her place of birth, in leaving her family, in leaving her country. And for me, I wanted to really understand what it felt to encounter the ocean, albeit right across the other side of the Indian Ocean, I suppose as the crow flies, not exactly opposite, but kind of opposite where geographically one would imagine, you know, Bombay to be. And there was something really quite extraordinary about that as a feeling for me, you know, this relationship to this mass of water, this incredible sort of seascape, the other side of which was India. But somehow that the seeds were being dispersed far and wide. And in that sense, whilst I was in Mauritius, one of the things that was very important to me, and in a way is very much continuous of earlier works, including Magnesium Bird, which is, of course, part of the Arnold Feeney show as well. But also it relates to um, a, another work that was commissioned by the New Art Exchange some years ago, back in around 2006, 2008, where I made a piece called In Perpetuity. And again, it was focusing on the, the dispersal of 
flora and fauna across the globe as a, cons as a consequence of these colonial histories. And it struck me whilst I was in Mauritius, which its history is very interesting in the sense that prior to um, its it, it's presumed that prior to European um, colonial, settler colonialism, that it was basically an uninhabited island. It's a volcanic island and um, it's, you know, some distance, but it's off the coast of Africa. And indeed, um, when the settler colonialists arrived, um, it was part of a system of um, extraction of, um, you know, growing uh, sugarcane and other produce that was then shipped to far and wide and, you know, exported to European colonies, you know, by the Dutch, the Spanish, the French, the British, uh, quite probably the Portuguese, for all I know. Um, and these were also colonial presences in India. You know, these were settler colonialists in India. And part of what happened, certainly in, in Mauritius, but also in India, was that as the settler colonialists um, arrived in these various parts of the colonized world, and as Edward Said has noted, I think it that at the height of the Victorian period, um, it's I think the um, that the percentage of the Earth's surface that had in fact been colonized by that time, if I if memory serves me correctly, and I may have this figure a little wrong, so forgive me if that's the case. But as I recall, it's well, it was well over 85% of the lands of the Earth's landmass. And what was also consequential was that as settler colonialists arrived and as slaves were um, brought to these different parts of the colonized world, um, whether that was through the transatlantic slave trade or whether indeed it was part of the slave trade that was part of the Indian Ocean world. So slaves from India, from East Asia, from Polyponesia, that along with these histories of slavery, we also saw in sync the transport of flora and fauna you know, flora. So seeds and plant life that were brought from one part of the world by the settler colonialists uh, or settler colonialism from, say, for example, India or, you know, Africa or South America to these um, different parts of the world in order that they became parts of a landscape and gardens that form parts of, became a sort of status symbol of the settler colonialists. And sometimes 
for example, in, in India, for example, for, for instance, as well as in New Zealand, um, and I suppose in many parts of the world, you know, for example, the British colonialists, settled colonialists, would bring plant life with them from the UK, England, wherever, um, that created a sense of home for the settled colonialists. But that sat in conjunction with what we came to understand as belonging to exotica, you know, the kind of orientalization of plants of indigenous populations that were part of this kind of broader mechanisms and power structures, if you like, that sat hand in hand with the expansion of empire across the different parts of the world. And so the palm tree and other flora and fauna, when I was in Mauritius, became part of, if you like, the research that I was doing there. And as I began to study, you know, the history of flora and fauna in Mauritius, as I traveled to their, the botanical gardens there, for example, um, that are really quite extraordinary. It's now part of the World Heritage Site. I began, of course, to realize and to learn about the fact that the indigenous plant life had been superseded and, in fact, was being um, impacted very negatively, as were the natural kind of um, animal life, if you like, of Mauritius by these invasive species that were brought in and introduced by the colonials and settler colonialists. But one of the interesting things that also struck me, and I began to think about whether these were pods and seeds that had perhaps been brought also by, for example, they called indentured slaves, but that's just really a, a polite word for slaves. Um, um, from India, for example, um, because I began to recognize plants that I had seen, uh, recognize plants in Mauritius that I had seen and that were growing in different parts of India, for example. And I learned, in fact, I think from, uh, from various sources that, um, that slaves would often carry seeds from home with them, the indentured laborers and, and um, slaves in their hair or in stitched into their articles of clothing. And that this also sits in conjunction with the kinds of narratives and, and mythologies that began to um, evolve in, say, for example, Mauritius, that again relate to faraway geographies and a sense of home, a home that was lost under very brutal conditions. Because, for example, we know with indentured labor from India, for example, that first of all, many of those um, Indian subjects were 
those that belong to the poorest, poorest disenfranchised communities and were in many cases were very malnourished as a consequence of, for example, the, the famine that was triggered in India by the British um, during the period of the British Raj. And so, and they were, these were illiterate um, uh, slaves really effectively, who were promised a better life, you know, but forced into slavery that at the very least lasted for 12 years, you know, without pay in really quite dire situations. And if, indeed, if, if they survived the journey themselves, um, were then put into a situation where their children, were they to have them, were born into indentured slavery, basically, or labor. And so they, they had no rights. So this history and this sort of extraordinary sense of geographies and the complexity of these histories, you know, these, how the world is welded geographically, you know, and the systems of power, the vectors, you know, the longitude and latitude, the traveling from one place of another and to another, the stories, the narratives, the physical bodies that made these journeys and, and, and what is left in its after aftermath, not only 200 years ago or 400 years ago, but in its current climate, because of course, in terms of the tourist location that this beautiful, you know, series of palm trees are part of, in fact, that particular resort, I understand, is still in the ownership of the family who colonized, French colonial, settler colonialists who originally uh, arrived at in, in Mauritius. So there is a history here that is very complicated. And in terms of how I feel this painting reflects on that is precisely about that very complicated, you, you know, journey and the lost voices, exploded voices. And I think that for me, that palm tree sitting on the edge of the Indian Ocean, I remembered looking at it, you know, sort of spotlit, if you like, and it is, you know, without doubt, you can't pretend that it's not glorious, it's not beautiful. But looking up at the night sky beyond it, into this black, immersive space, which is the ocean, and just thinking and pondering and wondering about, about not only my mother's journey, but about the trauma and the fear of all those subjects who were forced into these really dire circumstances. And I remember on that particular night that the photograph was taken, how extraordinary it was because it was full moon. And so Lumen as a as a motif, if you like, as a late motif, is very present 
you know, in, in the painting, you can just see that extraordinary, you know, presence of it. It's extraordinary presence just there in the painting as indeed this amazing, you know, very magnificent specimen and plant explodes, you know, divided across two halves, separated, almost separated from itself. There's something um, very interesting, the way you talk about um, this perception of enormous distance and, um, you know, as a way, as a lens, really, to look through um, history's experiences and, and, like you say, these sorts of traumatic legacies. When I first saw the painting um, being installed, I was very struck by how the colours were a lot more vivid than I was expecting originally. I think in, you know, as I'd imagined it in our conversations, I'd imagined something maybe a little bit more, um, you know, sort of uh, um, faint or sort of washed out somehow, almost like a kind of memory. But the colours are, they're really, really vivid and almost, um, I was interested you mentioned the moon there because it does have this quality of moonlight. Also maybe something that's slightly um, surreal somehow. Um, I sort of, I thought a little bit about um, the paintings of Henri Rousseau, which I, you know, I remembered studying, you know, when I was at school. Um, and this sort of particular language that I think we've got around uh, these distant, uh, exotic, like you say, sort of places. But then it's so undercut, you know, when you think about the, the, uh, the title and some of the stories that you're bringing to it. And also this slightly sort of um, unnerving quality in the painting, this sort of slightly surreal quality. So, yeah, which is this sort of juxtaposition, I suppose, of sort of distance, exoticism, but also something that's just um, haunted, I guess. That's really interesting. And I think you, you, you're completely right that... I felt quite haunted as I was painting it, actually. I felt that, <laughs> I felt it took, took over me and it told me how to paint it. And it was very surprising, you know, I, 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 I followed it. And um, I think that that does happen, you know, when you're making art, that you perhaps begin with an idea and as you really inhabit that space, that somehow it begins to take over as, as if it's inhabiting you. And, you know, um, I think you're absolutely right. There is some, there is a very surreal quality to it. And um, the colors are very accentuated, very, very bright. There was um, at, at, at the very bottom of well one of the first colors I I laid in was a um quite a bright it's a, in, in fact it's a fluorescent yellow which if you turn out the lights would glow in the dark um and I guess that that was one of the first colors I laid down because I thought that I would then mask out zones in order to um, as I painted this scene of the fireworks, if you like, where, you, you know, beads of this sort of fluorescent paint would, 
would would come through. And I guess that, um, of course, when you add paint over it, then you know it reduces it, it reduces its sort of luminescence. But nevertheless, because it is part of the ground paint and pigments um, of of the central zone of where that palm tree it sits <clears throat> in two halves of the painter of the two halves of painting quite centrally um, positioned. Um, I think it 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 does have it does have a presence that charges through it. Well, also, so, I think that that um, I remember when we were hanging the work, you ended up feeling that you wanted the lighting in this space to be quite dim. So, as this, you know, like you say, this this luminosity, this slightly glowing quality of some of some of the um, lower layers of paint does really come through again in this sort of lunar quality. I, I think really. Oh, how fascinating! Yeah, I think I mean it, it, you you'll have been seeing it fairly regularly since <laughs> I, you know, since I was there to install it. But it that's great that that is still. The case. It was a very bright day when we were installing, and that's you're absolutely right. I was quite keen to to allow that sense of as you approach it, almost that you get a sense of its luminosity. And you know, um, the, the the work is it's acrylic paint and and oil pastels, and um, you know, some of the marks on the oil pastels are. Uh, of a very bright, almost silvery white um, surface quality to it. And that too was was very deliberate in terms of just drawing out that sort of, as you say, I think that's a lovely description, lunar quality and lunar, lunar presence. And, um, you know, it feels otherworldly in, in mm. a way. Um, and you're also absolutely right in the sense that, um, you know, the reference to Rousseau's paintings. I've always been completely fascinated by that. And um, I learned much later as an art history student and um, subsequently that, that in, in fact, you, you know, uh, that was all painted, I, I believe in Paris, um, mm. uh, you know, for part, partly from his imagination and, and probably partly from photographs, you know. Um, so it's this entirely, I mean, and it's an extraordinary painting, um, which I have to say I do love. Um, but there is, it, there is something about it that's very unnerving and also very typical of its time, you know, uh, um, historically, that it was representative of a real movement at that time to, as it were, expand in terms of known quantities of Europeanness, if you like, or Eurocentricity, to begin to think about the wider world. But of course, the lens is very European. You know, I'm not sure that in Rousseau's in that those those series of paintings, um, to what extent that's that's present in the way that, say, for example, Gauguin's paintings I find more more far more troubling. 
you know, they are extraordinary paintings, no doubt, but they are troubling, deeply troubling. Um, but Rousseau's paintings, if we stay with that for the time being, are very reminiscent of that period in history when Exotica, you know, this kind of being in love with um, Exotica, you know, what Exotica and the Oriental meant in, in some ways, how it was defined, how it was received, how it was perceived. And it takes me also back to my, one of my earliest memories of England, um, which was our family visits. We, we, we lived quite reasonably close to Kew Gardens at that time. And my family used to travel back in the 60s and 70s to Kew Gardens. You know, it was a real treat for us. And in those days, you know, children, you know, it was pretty much free. For, for, well, it was free for children, but you, and you, it was a penny you used to drop it in the turnstile and adults used to go through. But it, it was a place that my parents really loved because, of course, the greenhouse, the greenhouses there, that and many of the plant life, you know, the, the, the flora, flora there, are so much are so important to them because they are so redolent and they are literally things that, as species, originate from the places that my parents came. And so, in that sense, I always felt that Kew Gardens was a zoo as indeed my parents felt that it was a zoo. And that when we were there visiting as family, that somehow we became part of that zoo. Because the space is so imbued with a history that it itself can't escape from, you know, it's so loaded. And I think that going back to the painting and the title, you know, you see one thing and you do, I think, experience something that is quite surreal, that is kind of uncomfortable in a way, but also, I hope, exquisite and, and draws you in to look at all the fronds. You know, they're quite sharp. They're set against, you know, colours that you don't expect and you can see red coming through and you're not quite sure if it's because this space is lit up from underneath or behind or where it's quite coming from. So there is something slightly disconcerting about it. And of course, then the title, which begins to literally situate that journey in a particular time and space and geographical longitude and latitude. It's um, listening to you talk, Shudipa, I'm so struck by the um, richness of connections um, between Zoo and um, the other piece that you're showing, Tarnolfini, um, which is Magnesium Bird, your, um, your film piece. So again, we've got this sort of relationship between explosions of light and trees, um, and a space that's, um, you know, from a great distance has got a connection with a very particular sort of colonial history, and which you also connect to um, the lives of, of 
of the life of one of your parents in, in a really particular way. But I suppose we're moving from this tropical um, sort of, you know, very vividly coloured space to something that's much more um, uh, almost like a blasted heath almost, isn't it, the, the day that you filmed in this northern English um, garden. Could you tell us a little bit more now about Magnesium Bird? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, and uh, it is a very evocative work. And it's a piece that in some ways, I mean, as you, as you mentioned, it's, it was made, um, was filmed in, uh, at Harwood House, which is in the north of England in Yorkshire. And um, very, uh, it was very exciting. It's, it's, it's filmed in the Victorian walled gardens of um, Lady, uh, of Lord and Lady, uh, Harwood and David and Diane, who were um, incredibly generous and supportive, and you know, very wonderful in terms of just allowing me to film this work, in which um, there are many explosions going on, actually orchestrated, albeit within the Victorian World Gardens in the Apple Orchard, uh, which is a functioning apple orchard, as is other parts of that Victorian walled garden. You know, they, uh, David and Diana, you, you know, they, the, the estate still grows plants and various things in, you know, vegetables and whatnot in, in their fruit. Um, which, uh, you know, is, is consumed. Um, so it is a very important location for me because, of course, Harwood House, the wealth of Harwood House is built on the history of slavery and the history of extraction, not only in terms of the Caribbean, but also in terms of its links with the spice trade in, and you know other kinds of trade, um, because Britain, of course, has a very very long and complicated history with India. You know when, in I believe the eighteen hundreds, um, France and England came together, um, you know heads of government, state, um, and decided how they would as it were, amicably carve up which part of the empires they decided they would focus on, concentrate on, if you like. Britain elected India and France elected Africa, if you like. And of course, you know, those things aren't so hermetically sealed as we, as we know, you know, that, that, that's, that would, that's not the case. But so for me, that link to India and again, the zoo and my my father became really very Im important. Um, I should say that initially uh, we had intended to we had hoped to film Magnesium Bird actually in Kew Gardens, um, but they never got back to it in time <laughs> ahead of my forthcoming, you know, exhibition, solo exhibitions at the time. And so we wrote to other potential sites and locations 
And Harwood House very generously got back to us and said, yes, you're welcome, you know, come and use our gardens. And so it is a work that Magnesium Bird is something that references, a piece that references the last conversation I had with my father before he died. And um, and that was in 2000. Sadly, he died of um, uh, after a fairly short battle with with um, cancer. Um, he he passed away in the early part of two, the year 2000, and it was a very it was a devastating loss because I was very close to my father, um, but because when somebody passes in one's family, what you lose are all of the stories and narratives that are part of that person's life. And in my father's case, as I mentioned, birds were the last the subject of the last conversation I had with him. And it was a very strange set of circumstances in that on the day that my father died, um, I found myself unusually, I was editing uh, another work called Untitled um, Woman in Blue Weeping, which references Vermeer's um, painting, you know, woman reading a letter. And I found myself just feeling incredibly distraught. Not really, I was in central London at, um, editing this work, not far from what was once upon a time Dylan's bookshop. And just off Gower Street in central London in Bloomsbury. And I, I wondered, I found myself wandering into the bookshop, just thinking, what books will console me when my father passes away? My father was an agronomist. So he, he was somebody who was very absorbed in questions of economics and agriculture and very interested in these histories of plants and species and plant life. And as I found myself wandering through Dylan's bookshop, I arrived in one room and the first book I reached out for was Proust's um, Swan's Way in Remembrance of Things Past. And I, as you do, you, I sort of thumbed through the book and it fell open on, on a page that was the kind of introduction to the book. And this is a book that I had already read. Um, so I was kind of drawn to it for that, that reason, but it fell open on a page that was also a kind of, if you like an introduction, but also a critique to um, Proust's work and his use of metaphor in terms of how he describes 
his relationship to time and to things past. And in this one passage, it describes how Proust's use of metaphor, um, reference to the wood pigeon and the wood pigeon's sound cutting through the forest is a metaphor for distance and time and history. And the last conversation I had with my father was about this metaphor. And when I arrived at the hospital on that day after this moment, the other two books, incidentally, were books by Borges and Allen Ginsberg, a poetry book of poems. And um, anyway, by the time I arrived at that day um, at the hospital, my father sadly had already passed into a coma. And I, the nurse who was there said, you know, he may not be able to hear you, but have a conversation with him because you never know. And so I began to recount, excuse me, this story and what had happened um, at, you know, in the bookshop to my father and said, you know, recount Proust's use of metaphor and also say to him, you know, that the person who was introducing, critiquing the book, uh, Proust's writing, was saying how in Proust's life, it was estimated that he had written more than five million words. And so I began to say to my father, you know, dad, I, I began to think about all of the conversations that in our lifetime we have shared and how it must be more than five million words. And though I won't remember everything, you will, you know, though your our conversations, your words will come back to haunt me and I won't forget them because they will be like Proust's wood pigeon cutting through the forest of time. So when I created, when I made um, after very sadly, and uh, well, I should also say that my father at that point, you know, I realized that he could hear me because he started to weep and he, he had lost his speech, um, but he started to weep. And he, of course, he helped me and he gave his blessings to myself and my sister and my mom who were in, in the room. And then, unfortunately, passed back into um, a coma. But after he passed away, ironically, you know, well, ironically, coincidentally, um, the first heard I, the first sound I heard when after he passed away was the sound of birds. So this was really something that was very haunting to me. And following his death. I, for a very long time, every day would just paint a bird, you know, or draw a bird just by way of marking time. It was almost obsessive, really, um, in the sense that, you know, it was my way of grieving and of grieving loss. 
And so I knew very early that I wanted to make a piece in homage to my father. And of course, what happens in Magnesium Bird is that I began to, I worked with Innova and Film and Video Umbrella and, um, you know, our galleries at the time um, and with Harwood House to think about how to orchestrate that space. We, I created a number of, with um, uh, my my producers and also people involved in the production of this work, um, uh, Gregory Vass uh, and a number of people, myself included, we've created these very exotic birds, if you like, you know, all these very elaborate, that's probably the best word, very elaborate birds built out of magnesium ribbon, you know, dozens and dozens of them. And we then tested at Pinewood Studios um, the kind of light that I was looking for in, in terms of when they were satellite, what was the color of the light, the retinal trace that was left at the back of your eye, if you like, when they were satellite. And so these magnesium birds were made out of a particular kind of magnesium ribbon that when sparked, when set off, would leave a very, very bright white silvery light. And this also relates to my work, Zoo, you know, the painting that's at Arnolfini. So magnesium bird is, just to describe it, it's a series of it sat in the orchard, the apple orchard of Harwood House. And what you see in the foreground and in the background, in the mid-range um, of that frame of this moving image work, are a series of tiny explosions that happen. They're orchestrated. And what they are, are in fact the, the sculptures created out of magnesium ribbon that are orchestrated and organized to, if you like, explode in a timed way. And in the rear of that space, what you see are a group of children. And in fact, a group of children playing. And in fact, those children include my son and most of my nieces and nephews, two of my nephews were abroad at the time. So it's about this relationship between across generations. And the extraordinary thing is that on the day of filming and what we see in Magnesium Bird is that the camera pans across the geographic space, across that landscape, across that pictorial space from left to right, from left to right from left to right. The work is approximately, I think, nine minutes, 28 seconds. And so it was very, it's very interesting in the sense that we shot quite a lot of footage on the day that we were filming 
on the day of the reconnoiter, it was so bright and sunny. There was no breeze. It was just perfect spring weather. <laughs> but on the day of filming, there were gale force winds, you know, 70 miles an hour. And I was terrified on the way up to Yorkshire thinking, oh, my God, my crew's not going to turn up. My family's not going to turn up. It's going to be a complete disaster. But luckily, everybody turned up. But the extraordinary thing was that these we had to film in between these squally showers because it, it was torrential rain, you know, and as I say, gale force winds. But what happens in the process and what was just sheer luck and sheer coincidence is that you have this incredibly evocative space. So when the birds are ignited and, as it were, explode in this quite beautiful space, it becomes very bleak and counter to the kind of image you see in zoo, if you like, the painting. And what you see is this extraordinary smoke rising, you know, into the air and filtering through that space, creating almost like a blue pink mist in the background. You see these very stormy clouds in the rear. And most films are um, led in many ways visually, but I'm actually very excited by the fact, and at that time, that it was the audio, the sound which led and leads this piece. So what you see, in fact, is about 28 minutes, 28, sorry, seconds of footage, left to right, left to right. And in actual fact, the work is carried by the sound, the music score and the sound and, um, and the sound design. So what you hear is children in the background talking and laughing and screaming in places. It feels as if you are overhearing the laughter as you walk past a school and you can't quite place the disturbance. You can't quite place the conversation, but you can hear bits of it. And there's something very unsettling about that. And in amongst that sound, which carries us through the piece, is the sound of the storm, you know, the scale force wind. So you hear the wind battering against the microphone. So you get this sort of, you know, this extraordinary sort of sound. It's very haunting, actually. So you get these two things, these two planes, you know, the, the, the audio plane, this, you know, the, the place of sound and then the place of the visual. And what I think begins to happen is that as the sound carries you through, your visual constantly takes you back to the beginning, to this place that it won't leave across 28 seconds. It's a little bit like a typewriter, an old fashioned typewriter, wherein you type frantically or not, and the ribbon moves from left to right. And as you reach the end of, you know, the left and the right, or the right, as you were, as the ribbon moves across, and you hit the end of the spool, really, 
at that at that point, it automatically shifts itself back to the left and you start writing again. So it's actually quite a complex work about language, about time, about history, about trying to find oneself in the present, but at the same time, taking yourself back to the point of starting, you know, to, to the point of starting of history and time. So it's important to consider not only that conversation with my, my father and myself, between my father and myself, but also to remember the conversations that are happening in situ with my offspring, with my nieces and nephews, with my siblings' offspring, in this very elaborate, incredibly affluent estate that was built on the proceeds of slavery and extraction slavery and colonial extraction. So, and it has a link to my father because as I mentioned, he and my mother were born in what once upon a time was India, but became British India under the British Raj and then was twice displaced. So it's about these constant sense of things and people and voices and narratives that travel across geographies and spaces to end up in front of you. And I say that because in the background to Magnesium Bird, we can in fact see greenhouses and they're beautiful. They reflect the light. So there is something strangely, you know, very strange about that, that space. It isn't quite lunar, but it has another kind of sense of season and, and time and space. But in those greenhouses, originally would have been grown plants. In fact, I think there were some uh, pineapple at the time being grown. So species that when that garden, when the, 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 the first foundations, which I believe it was 1753 um, or seven, anyway, the 1750s, uh, circa 1750s, um, and those gardens were built or landscaped by, designed by Capability Brown. So at that time, what we were seeing is the expansion of the East India Company and the results of extraction wealth. And of course, you know, um, plant life that traveled from the far reaches of the globe and arrived in England and the UK. That's wonderful. Um, thank you so much, Shudpa. Um, incredibly rich, detailed, um, layered description and connections between the two pieces.